Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome into today's episode of the Top Cut Yu-Gi-Oh! Podcast. My name is Sonny. I am here with my co-host, Caleb. Hello! And before we get too far in, we, of course, want to thank all of our patrons. So a huge thank you to Austin Johnson, Salix, Kane, Martin, Damian, Zinc, Marshawn Jones, Master of Isa, Mr. Herbie's Witchcraft Remain 2022, Zephyrius, AD, Aaron Gardner, Anthony Leela, Opelousa is a Floodgate, Dank Nugs, Dank Nugs Now with Dino DNA, Kevin Hugh, Matt, Mountain Man, Myth Oceanus, Owen Alvarado, Pig, Rudolph, Seth, Oom, Sneaky Links, Chris Myers, MBT's Hard Leg, Ray Powell, Slaking It Up, Sunny Sweet, and Zypherus. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast at no extra cost to yourself, you can always find our TCG Player affiliate link in the description down below. And if you are interested in getting our playmat on Imperium Duelist, you can find the link to that down below. And as always, you should be able to follow us on spot on Twitter at Top Cut Podcast and follow us on uh, or join our Discord server. Uh, and if you want to do our Top Cut Locals, we are doing those every Thursday night in the server. It is free entry. It is just there to help everybody get better at the game. So please be join, be sure to join and come out and hang out with us on that. And I think that's it. Caleb, you got anything else? Nope. You just about covered everything I could think of. All right. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce our wonderful guest. So how are you today, Mr. John Moore? What's good, Top Cut? And welcome to the podcast. I'm that is, good. yeah, that is everything I hoped it would be. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. The man, the myth, the legend, John Moore from the House of Champs YouTube channel. So, I just jumping right on into it, where does that name come from, that House of Champs moniker? Okay, so used to, it's very creative, I know. There were <laughs> two champions living in a house, and we started a YouTube channel. 
fair enough. Hard to argue. I mean, it, it just works. It just works. For those that don't know, my roommate used to be Billy Brake, one of the best in the game. He recently-ish moved out to work for Konami. As you might have seen his updated title on the streams, it says that he's now a Konami employee. He's actually not allowed to play in, uh, I think it's above tier two events right now. So he can't actually go and try for a fifth win. As I understand, Jackie actually has him playing Yu-Gi-Oh again. But for me, my win is ancient. It actually, if it was a human being, I think wouldn't be allowed to play dragon duels after this year. That's that's something to think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I think about the time you won, we weren't actually like all the way in competitive yet. We didn't really get competitive until about Edison format is when we started really like trying to go to like locals and even to yeah. regionals and stuff. So um, it's a really kind of an interesting uh, dichotomy of when people you know it's interesting to talk to people that were like playing at the highest level before we even really got into the game for uh, me i've been there as a Yu-Gi-Oh dinosaur since the very beginning i actually got in with lob when the anime came on the tv i just stopped pokemon i had actually given my cards to my brothers and then i saw the first episode and i'm like oh, i've gotta have that i got six packs at a bookstore that doesn't even exist anymore that used to be a chain called borders lob i pulled one leg of exodia my highest attack monster was 1600 it wasn't till metal raiders i even found out starter decks existed so i got the typical you go to locals get ripped off for your first trades but i got very lucky and metal raiders i happened upon one of the boxes that had four to five foils in every single pack and the rest were rares so it was crazy packs i had like six mirror forces and the moment i saw how e like eager people were to trade with me even 13 year old little john moore was like wait a minute i'm gonna stop trading for the day and start to look things up online because i traded one mirror force for two blue eyes and that was very bad back then now not so terrible first ed starter deck blue eyes is they're going for a pretty penny but back then it was a total ripoff and i didn't even have sleeves for like my 60 card decks they had to explain the rules to me yes yes you tribute monsters all the sort of typical first mistakes for a locals and after that i just got fired up i wanted to beat everybody i wanted to win i was finally playing in tournaments which i never did with pokemon like i was actually old enough to comprehend entry getting to play how it all went so that's kind of my entry into the world of Yu-Gi-Oh but it's definitely on the back of like the anime and exposure back then and from there i've been in the competitive scene ever since mrd i was on the pojo forms i was peeking over at dgz while that was popping and all of the ancient tools oh my gosh and the different eras of teams i i can go on for hours so i'll let you get some more focus questions in here <laughs> yeah definitely I, I do think though that your career spanning the entire life of the game itself is without a doubt one of the most storied careers one of the most interesting and one of the most electric and the most iconic and a lot of people might not even realize that um there, there's not a lot of people that can say that they have for the most part been a part of this game in one way or another for the entire time i mean there's probably very little time where you've taken real breaks throughout your time in the game. Is that, I mean, is that a fair assessment? I've actually never taken a complete break. Whenever I would stop playing, I was vending, which would be 
Dragon Ruler format on through about wind-up loop format. And even then, I would still, while I'm at the tournaments, be playing to not disrespect the TOs and, you know, make sure that I'm... I actually would go to all the vendors, too, and, like, try to make sure I could make money buying from the vendors and that kind of stuff, which a lot of people sleep on that one. A lot of people don't go booth to booth, find out why these certain vendors specialize in what they do, why they're there, why they have a name, because a lot of them do different things better. For example, Troll and Toad, who's actually a sponsor of mine now, I actually used to do a huge level of business with them through their buy list and their buy list would be very specialized and then there would be money to be made also by the store credit actually juicing i think it's like 35 percent now it used to be 25 percent and getting those kinds of deals and then waiting for their black friday deals i actually ended up buying some of my own playmats back from them at a discount during some of those sales but it's funny the kind of cycles you can get to to where you realize this vendor's thriving because of this or oh used to untapped games Games was the big name in taking in bulk or why why are these guys at every single event game time what's making them thrive oh i can actually buy cards from them if i'm talking and dealing with them on a pretty large scale there's so many things that could if you work and really like network which is in any field something that people don't consider the vendors if you're trying to be a floor vendor aren't necessarily your enemy but can become one of your greatest lifelines and making consistent money at these events Absolutely. I think that work, like you said, networking is huge on uh, a lot of different levels. And in this card game, it can really make the difference on your ability to play the game on a competitive level sometimes. So... Yeah, so, so you'll also, by keeping up with prices these days, notice trends before they spike into the physical card game, be it from the OCG and hype from over there, which may or may not translate into our game. And these days it's worse than ever because every single rogue deck spikes into oblivion just off the hype from a reveal, which is different than how it used to be. But the true trends that also will follow, like people who were sleeping on Mega Ryza and then it actually dipped again and went back up or more recently a luber actually dipped after its initial buyouts it yeah. was 70 went back down to 55 people started snoring and now it's over 100 yeah yeah i made the biggest mistake ever when i i sold mine for 35 and then oh, the, no. and then the structure deck got announced like the next week oh yeah brutal. the biggest of oofs yeah it was brutal it was it was bad yeah, I remember you calling me up and be like, I messed up. Yep, as soon as the structure got announced, I called Caleb and I was like, I may have made a mistake. Yeah. The thing <laughs> is, no matter how good you are at the market or how good of a player you are, you will always, always make mistakes. For example, for me, I sold Maxis at their very bottom of like, 11 12 dollars before they spiked to 80 i had like 25 of them they're sitting there and i'm like you know what i could flip this into something else i've speculated on this card far too long it, it sat and sunk for a very long time before it ended up really spiking through the roof and people don't remember that moment in history where yeah obviously this card's gonna make it one day but i've been sitting on this for far too long and you want your money to actually move and sometimes you gotta really diamond hands and sometimes you've gotta make the the call to okay it's fine to take an l my money starts to need start moving that kind of stuff and people you're gonna make your wrong calls no matter how good you are or how bad the hindsight seems 2020 definitely 
So I want to kind of start a little bit further back, right? I want to start at the beginning and find out a little bit more about John Moore, the player. So I know obviously there's like the memes within the community about John won't let us forget about his uh, SJC win. But... Okay, that's only Coder. That is only Coder. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. But just, you know, realistically, there is definitely something to be said for you are a SJC champion, right? Like that that's not something that can ever change. And it's a very short list of people that are there, right? It, it's... Not everybody can be an SJC or YCS champion. So I think that there's something really to be respected about playing at the highest levels of the game at any point in the game's history. So I'm kind of curious to get some of your perspectives maybe on how the game was different at that time at the highest levels versus, and I know that you, don't, you don't necessarily play at a high level these days, you're more into the content creation side, but you know your perspective on the game at the highest levels then versus now. The one huge difference was information sharing, like the advent of YouTube, Yugi tubing. That was not a thing in 2002. YouTube didn't even exist. So going through, you were in message boards trying to figure out what's happening, but the real goo was going to be held by the teams, and teams have also evolved into three ways. So to explain the difference of a team back then versus today, teams back then were basically comprised of the best players being really tight-knit, not leaking things. It would be mega drama if leaks happened outside of the group, even from playtesting. You were only the playtest with the team partners when the techs were being developed, because here's what the good teams would try to do. They look at the last event. Then they figure out what beats the last event. Then they go a step further and figure out what beats what beats last event. So that's what they would be consistently labbing. They'd be like, okay, this tech clearly beats that, but can we counter the tech that we're using in the deck because we've only evolved it a little, but can we make a workaround? Or you would have the surprise burn decks that would suddenly win, such as Kenny So from Comic Odyssey, who is actually the owner of Core TCG, taking down the 2007 last troop dupe format nobody in the world saw burn winning but comic odyssey labbed that one right so you have the teams of old and texas's star is out phase california star is overdose and you have a lot of the even older teams that 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 are very renowned team nexus and so many just good teams and memories you can't name all of them but out phase was texas's big one consisting of heavy hitters like philly luna the first to get four wins billy break actually ends up on out phase later the only other duelist to hit four wins when i say wins it's ycs sjc other people have achieved the four win threshold including stuff like UDSs and Nats and that kind of thing. But only two people still hold the four YCS SJC wins, and that's Philly and Billy out of Texas. So you have just all these heavy hitters, Jason Holloway. You have Chris Bowling, who will become a national champion and YCS champion. All information sharing to become better players to beat not only the next best deck, but then what's further beyond? And they tested with me a lot because they wanted to see it like, okay, what's this rogue option? Why am I not beating it? And Samurai was one of the first ones that they wanted to test with me for because I, before my win, I actually topped in 07. So I got kind of brought into the fold of traveling with them, all these events, going with them out places and, you know, testing with them. And my only other top that's not Samurai's is when I traveled with them in 2007 for Indianapolis where three of us in the car top it's me philly and billy 
We all Top Shonen Jump Indianapolis with Troop Dupe, although we all play different variants, ironically. I play Troop Dupe Monarch side into Full Machine that Bill, I was actually doing it the reverse way, but Billy convinced me to switch and I topped the regionals, which that's another story. Oh my gosh, the Indianapolis Gen Con regionals were like a Shonen Jump. And then uh, Billy is on Baboon of all things and really hyping that up because Baboon hadn't made its real like statements and Philly was on his different kind of build too so all of us in the car three out of five people in the car managed to top the event and you would see that way too often from teams because we're labbing we're ahead and we're figuring out what we're doing with the game before anybody else because you don't have all these people testing and information sharing and doing it you have the the true secrets and all of that falls to an end for I, I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent all that falls to an end with the Hoban clan I want to say later on, I, there's this event where it's Secret Village of the Spellcasters during Necroz, and that leaks out the night before, and I feel like that's the last era you ever see of these teams, because the information sharing, it just can't stay a secret anymore, people aren't able to do that, and then later you see the sponsorship teams pop up, like the Card Guys, Pro Play Games, Jobber, where it's not really about testing, but it's more about like, yo, we get paid for this profile, or we have these circles within the teams, instead of that pure information sharing powerhouse that it used to be i think that there's also something to be said and you can confirm or deny this i actually don't even know if this is something that really happened at the time but i've heard i don't know if this is true in the that, rumor mill yeah that way back in the day there was also something to be said for teams that would work together and go to these sjc's and they would win things like multiple crush card viruses multiple gold sarks and things like that and share them around with the team and make the whole team stronger at that point. Yes, to a degree, like Philly used a crush card to win crush cards. And that's something that they've talked about before where like, you know, Philly doesn't need a second crush card. So-and-so is going to buy or use it within the team. That definitely did happen where the team starts rolling further and stronger. Like Holloway was then, I believe, using crush card. And I forget if he was using it when he won or not, but it definitely wasn't mass available when he won, I believe, because that's still the dad return era before the Teledad era, so I'm pretty sure I would think if we look at his list that he was using Crush Card in there but uh, he, yeah, definitely teams having access to those kinds of cards and monopolizing on them was much bigger in the game back then. Of course, I think there was also a bit of a different power level behind those championship yeah. cards than there is now. Uh, I mean, they can be good now, but at the time, Crush Card was just game-breaking. Yes, I want to say Crush is the pinnacle of that, but you do have other cards where the decks were only in the hands of people with them later, like Minerva Sworn, for example. We, I would get so many comments in the section like, call it Light Sworn. Why do you call it Minerva Sworn? How many Light Sworns are topping without Minerva? Exactly. Not a single one on the YCS circuit, and only one, I believe, on the entire regional circuit without a Minerva ended up topping while Minerva was out there. So it was indeed the Minerva Sworn. Or Caliber Cat, actually, in the area you're talking edison caliber cat you had to have the doom cows and that was a prize card yeah absolutely i mean these are the distinctions that were really a lot more prevalent at the time than they are now um but even so uh, there's nothing that can be said to take away how huge having an sjc win in your 
uh, repertoire of credentials is. Uh, I mean, it it does so much to um, just help, you know, it, it, it's credibility, right? Well, it was huge for me as I started vending. Pretty much everyone would let me borrow cards because I'm known. But I also was trading a lot on Pojo. So I had, like, feedback over 100, which was super rare back then. That, like, when I say 100, not 100%, but over 100 trades at 100%, which was rarer for online. So I had gotten my taste back in the day of I wanted this hobby to self-sustain, which I know is way more prevalent in people's lives today but definitely back then wasn't as much of a mindset and i wanted to be able to around 2007 i noticed i topped with troop dupe but i came back home after four days hotel and also you know traveling gas all the way there with more money in my pocket and more trades and i thought wow what did i do all weekend i was like i non-stop traded when i wasn't playing and wait, I can actually make money traveling. That's when I had that moment of, yo, this could be more than just like self-sustaining. I think I could make this into a long-term thing. And I know what some people are already typing in your comment section. It's way different today. Everybody looks at their phone and is disinterested. And that's not really the truth as a whole. It's more that personality will shine through. There's still going to be that guy at locals when I bring it up that happens to have everything. Sometimes you, you go, oh, I have to deal with that guy. Instead of have to deal with that guy, you want to be the guy with everything where, oh, you, dude, you're here? Oh, thank gosh, I need this. And that all comes down to personality, and you'll have way more people checking with you, seeing what you have, avoiding those seller fees, being able to, quote-unquote, make a deal a little under the seller fees, but make more than if you sold it on the platform, not have to deal with mailing it out, as long as you have a good relationship with your locals and you're working with these people. So that goes into the vending side of my career, where I, I see all those people like, it's not like it was then john i'm like i know i've been there i've seen it i've experienced it and it comes down to personality and not everybody's going to have that to deal and socialize and be that person that's not scum ripping somebody off when they get a chance and a lot of people just don't get that they think they have to max profit all the time that's absolutely not how to do it you do not max profit all the time sometimes breaking even trades are exactly what you want to do you want to do speculatory things and player brain can get you in trouble as we've mentioned but a lot of the time when you're hitting and going in like and you're making the right calls that those even trades will make you a lot of money too and get you repeat business later yeah absolutely and is that area is that era around when you said you came back from indianapolis and realized hey you know like there's something to this you know uh is that kind of when you realize that maybe there might be something to vending not just playing the game but actually taking a stance in the business side of it What's funny is when I won that weekend, I actually, with Gold Sark being a $2,000 prize card, I made more trading that day, like throughout the weekend, I guess, than winning the event despite having one of the money prize cards back then in terms of like modern prize cards. I would love for you to tell the story. You mentioned it on Twitter about having to get the card back for the picture. 
Okay, so this is pretty <laughs> bad, but this is all the way back in 2008 Upper Deck, so Konami, don't do not do anything, thanks. But I actually sold it to somebody who actually topped with it at the 50th in Costa Mesa. Mine's the 49th. And okay. I sold it to him so fast, like two to three minutes, that they made me go get it back from him. And he's walking out the door. They're like, you're in huge trouble if you don't get it back for the picture. I was like, but I traded it. Smile, and they're like, Smile. "You can get back right now." And so I ran out the door, and I'm like, "Dude, don't go! I need it just for the picture. I'll hand it right back. You can follow me. You can be with me. I need it right now." And so I had to go back, and Jason Grabermeyer standing there. He's uh, one of the writers for TCG Player now, by the way. But I'm having to stand there and, uh, while the other guys are staring at their card that they've already gotten from me, while I'm having to take a picture with it. That is the kind of thing, that's the kind of stories that you just don't get out of people that haven't been playing the game forever. That's awesome. <laughs> oh man, um, there's there's too many. Oh yeah, Though, I, I love stories like that. Um, and they fit perfectly for our format, so. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so how long did you vend before you started to think about maybe the possibility of content creation? Uh, that's actually a funny story. So, when I actually started to do videos, it was in preparation to one day open a shop, but we had to do it early because Billy won. We were in the discussion mode of creating a channel, and Billy won, and I'm like, we have to start it now, we don't have the equipment that we want, I guess we're just going to go for it. And that was kind of unfortunate because then it took like six months to get equipment in and get it how we wanted. And what's kind of funny is people really like our old tabletop duels and that was revolutionary for the time. But right. like I was on a $20 mic stand with electric tape and a Logitech C920. And in 2015, apparently that's high tech for Yugi Tube. Oh boy. Wow. You are speaking on our level. Yeah. But. <laughs> The, the main part of it was that we were looking at one day probably opening a store, want to be huge with the community. And throughout time, as YouTube as a community took off, because I kind of wanted to do streaming, watching all the fighting game streams, like yeah. Team Spooky in New York, and you have IFC Yipes commentating. I'm like, one day there's going to be something like this for Yu-Gi-Oh, perhaps. I, I was really thinking, like, being able to open a store, have a locals people come to, that be the content that kind of pays part of the rent of the store. That was my mindset. I I watched seven different friends get their stores robbed, kicked in, years of their life's gone, and I'm like, um, store owning might not be so much for me. Yeah, yeah. And by that time, my community had really taken its own shape, and I'm like, you know what? I can kind of be more of like this online locals space rather than, you know, a realistic locals and not even be dealing with the front end because in the content creation space for YugiTube, I set up a lot of the first sponsorships that you see. Like, nobody was sponsored. Nobody was working with people. So I was basically going, yo, this is what I bring to the table. I think I can bring you this kind of exposure. I'll only make money when I make a sale in terms of my, my coupon code so you don't have to worry about that. A lot of people won't take those kind of deals because they usually don't have the traction or attention or pull but i'm like 
Texan, and that's how I am. If I make the sale, then I get a piece, and otherwise you don't have to pay me for the exposure and those X factors, where that's not good for a lot of creators, though. Uh, but the volume did work out for me and ended up, you know, having me talk to more people, work more deals through times, and I would either get approached or approach people, and I've turned down so many people because people think I'll race car my channel out with anything, but... I immediately start reversing any interview to, okay, what do you bring versus my other sponsors? I've specifically gone out of my way. Troll and Toad has an amazing buy list and they also ship to South America pretty much cheaper than anybody. Tier Zero is international. They ship everywhere and they have some of the best pre-sales. Yu-Gi-Oh! Singles has some of the best pre-sales sanctioned for the US specifically, not just worldwide. And they do sometimes blow other prices out of the water. What do you bring to the table? And a lot of people that just think oh it's gonna be easy we'll have code what's good five they find out oh wait no we, we don't offer anything versus all these people like big three is consistently bringing good amounts of products at good prices and deals there too nobody else besides my sponsors that i currently have been able to look at all of them and say we offer something that those guys don't in terms of cards and then i love working with the artists in the community too i actually have somebody else that'll be doing something soon unique to art but you notice like i work with different sectors of like field centers play mats jim has been innovating for a very long time in terms of like they went from play mats to deck boxes that everybody's copied the style of to binders that people are copying the style of to now yeah. doing backpacks as well that nobody's been able to replicate and have have become a mainstay in the community i tend to look at things that aren't necessarily recreatable or replaceable or offer something super unique and you've got to fit into that mold which is where it comes back when i used to be a vendor i looked at all the shops and i said what can i do in terms of business with them where can i benefit and it comes back full circle to now they can do something unique for my audience definitely so it's always interesting to see which I, I noticed that for different things, you promote different sponsors. And I, I think that a lot of that is mostly based off of truly like it, it's for the people, right? So you're definitely going to promote the sponsor that actually brings the best deal for your audience. And so, I think that there's something said to be to be said for that, right? Here's the cool thing about that, too. Whenever I get paid, I'm making a sale. That doesn't mean that the sponsor is paying me. It means the viewer is, which ultimately that means I have to have the viewer's long-term interest and thought. So I'm not paid by the sponsor in all technicality. I only make money when there's a sale, meaning I am paid directly through the audience. Definitely, yeah. And it's it shows the way that you can be supported in different ways, right? Not just by ad revenue and not just by Patreon subscriptions and things of that sort, but it shows that as a creator, there's other avenues to make your mark, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, you don't have to do a set mold. Like I'm also one of the only streamers that'll also stream to both YouTube and Twitch without partnering with Twitch, because even if you're affiliate, that automatically means they own your broadcast and you can't multi-broadcast. And I like being able to reach the YouTube audience and do different kinds of gimmicks there, like YouTube versus Twitch nights and stuff like that. You don't have to fit a specific mold and you can definitely break a mold within the community. Also funny story in the content creation space, a lot of Yugi tubers didn't know anything about monetizing their channel. Like Doug 
actually refused to monetize his channel, DZF, until I'm like, this is dude, a story that I like hearing. I've you heard this story. Go ahead. You're big enough. <laughs> to be a channel that could be doing this for a living. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. He's working at Home Depot. I'm like, Doug, you're gonna see a huge difference the moment you actually start trying and you start applying yourself. And he's like, no, 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 there's no way. And I'm like, Doug, freaking do it. And the first month he's like, John, I made $200. And I'm like, yeah, I told you. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, versus like, he's now full-time sustaining off of that. That was him not really pushing too much and monetizing. He was like, I could have been making so much all along. And I'm like, Doug, I know. And he He's only at 6k subs at that point, right? And now he's passed me. He's gone to another level. And I knew, I told him, one day you're going to pass me. And he's like, no way. And I'm like, you have a freaking ability to, I forget it specifically what his degree is. I always call it writing, but I know it's not writing. But he, he like used to do articles. Like he actually did some feature match articles and stuff for Konami. And I'm like, you write really well, which means that's going to translate into your videos in terms of storytelling. And it's going to take off for you eventually way past what I do. Right. And that's also one of the things that I love most about hearing stories about your interactions with other creators in the community is I think that, and you may not even realize this. I think that you've really taken like, I almost want to say a, like a paternal spot in the community, right? Because there's so many different creators that we've talked to that have had these positive experiences with you helping them with their channels, giving them advice, giving them motivation to keep moving and keep going forward. And these channels kind of take off and keep going forward. Is there any particular reason that you feel motivated to do that? Because you've been so instrumental in so many different people's channels. So I'm a lot better at telling people what to do than doing it myself is part of it. I am very lazy. But also, the more you grow the space, the better it is for everybody. It's not as if they're going to suddenly be doing market watch on my level and taking what I do. It's they do this other thing that gets people into Yu-Gi-Oh! And I'm at the deeper level where you're likely at a competitive understanding. So the more gateways there are into Yu-Gi-Oh!, the better it is for my channel. A lot of people, when they get in, have this walled up mindset of, oh, if they're going to go over there and view their channel and spend the time over there, and that means I'm going to lose time over here unless I do this flashy thing or that thing. Absolutely not. You're going to be breaking your own glass ceilings. And I often offer this perspective as a little four-step thing in Yugi tubing that there are four things that you need to consider when being a channel. The top one's personality. You can't replace it. It'll come through even if it's not like, oh my gosh, best deck ever. Oh, pendulum best deck. It doesn't have to be hyperactive. That's what DZ Fenrata show. That humor or actual personality through writing into words can be that way, but personality is not replaceable at all. Second is quality of content. Audio is probably the most important thing. And then the visual uh, editing, how things actually move out. For me, I've actually just learned to speak better and longer, try to eliminate ums. And the moment I say um, I end up umming a lot. But a lot of people don't realize first when they're doing videos that they're even umming. And I've noticed you guys are really good at pausing and just letting there be a little bit of dead space, which is way better than ums. And you want to have that quality of content to where people aren't actually starting to critique your video for how it's set up. The third one would be entertainment value. Did I laugh? Did I learn? Why am I here? 
here, what am I getting out of it? And then the fourth and final one is the content subject itself. Is there a base for it if you're already in an established place? Why are people here over another channel? And that's usually a different kind of series or presentation, or you're doing something better than what people already do. And a lot of people get in coming in thinking they're going to do something better than what other people are doing. I actually thought that with Cordero, and then I learned I completely suck at what I was doing, and then I found my own groove and pace. I started uh, streaming regionals before they made a clause against me uh, to, you know, Konami actually has a clause that it has to be an OTS stores media that uploads it now after I was doing it for a while, but you have to actually look and change and pivot, and right then is when I happened to be doing Market Watch, which then took off even further than my regionals which was pretty darn nice but both of them would have just put my channel on another level and been grounded in the community helping spread things but then market watch really took me at first controversial people were like oh you're spiking the price of cards and i'm like information and people acting on it is going to yes change how people actually use their money and will affect the market when there's hundreds of cards versus thousands of eyes on something but it started to even out to where people realize all right everybody we had just a little bit of a hiccup with the recording software that we use there because my macbook is not the best for recording through discord so where we believe it cut out was about the time john was talking about the use of actually focusing in on the market watch aspect of his channel so um you can kind of pick up where you were around where you were you believe john and we'll kind of try to transition from there so with market watch there's a moment with my channel where i realize i have to stop vending but i was actively vending while still doing market watch and the reason i would do that is i felt like it had to sharpen me to a degree to put the information out there and then be ahead of it like a couple steps or in a sense like you know start immediately planning the next phase because i wouldn't like put something out that i usually had already bought but there is a point where that ended up happening and i realized i had to stop vending because that felt like insider trading to me which does happen all the time you look back to spell chronicle when i think it was specifically around arg or the hoban clan they really hyped up spell chronicle as a kind of point and laugh that people will eat up anything in the community and actually spend their money on it and that's way back then before all the videos and and people are like, oh, Market Watch has changed everything. That's the perfect example of, no, things have always been like that. But I bought a bunch of magnet reverses at 75 cents because a group of a team were planning for it for ABC format. And this was weeks before. By the time ABC format was there, it had crept up to $1.50. And I had a stack of 70 of them or so. And I did a tech highlight set to upload. I was specifically streaming a regional that weekend, so I wasn't even able to like list them right then. And when I got home, Magnet Reverse after my tech highlight was a $20 card. And that tech highlight only got like 4,500, 5,000 views, but people were topping with Magnet Reverse that weekend too. And I sold all of them at $12 while they were still 20. I wanted to just blow them out. I didn't want max value. And I sat back and I thought about it. And I said, that doesn't feel very good. That just doesn't really make sense to me why it doesn't feel good so i started to sit through and i'm like that's kind of like insider trading that's like you held 
information back from your audience that you could be giving them first and i typically do act that way but i had promised this team i wouldn't and i realized the conflict of interest there for me personally now i also want to say i don't blame any market watch channel who stays active and does their hustle and grind i actually think you should be very knowledgeable about the game and what you're doing i know a lot of them are major vendors or keep up with vending or trade and I think that's perfectly fine. But for me, and the scale that I used to operate on, I'd be going for 70, 100, 120 of a card at a time when it's like penny stonks, and that's how a lot of people operate with them. And I just realized, you know, what if you're in my audience and you get the package in and it says John Moore, right? And you could have got it, you know, earlier on when it was cheaper. I wouldn't have felt great about that. Definitely. So I want to transition a little bit, if that's all right with you. Go ahead. So we find that a lot of our listener base is newer and returning players, not necessarily 100%, not necessarily maybe even 80 or 60%. But even if it's 40%, right, there's something to be said for people, and I would feel like this is probably the majority of the actual player base of the game, is playing on a budget, right? Even, of course, you have the whales, right? You have the people that are willing to go out and spend $1,000 plus. Right, like the weekend of deck drops, they're not sponsored by anybody. They just really have the money to play the game and buy everything at that, like at that level, right? But you have, for every person like that, there's 10 or 15 people that are on a much more of a shoestring budget to play the game. And right now, because of subpar reprints in structure decks, the lack of promos in the tens and just the real subpar reprint strategy that Konami has gone with over the past, I would say two years, honestly, there really has been an overall rise and just inflation in the value of these cards and a rise in the amount of money that it takes to really play this game. So, I was kind of wondering if as the resident market expert and the expert on all prices Yu-Gi-Oh related, if you would have any kind of advice or tips for somebody that might be kind of getting into the game on more of a shoestring budget. Okay, so first let's get the source of the problem and then go to the budget part. For sure. The source of the problem is the new product structure ever since Eternity Code, where it went from eight secret rares a box to 10 secret rares a box and rares left and everybody yep. took it as me being really mad that rares were gone no what i was really mad at was the ratios because now every single secret rare was almost akin to an old school version of short shorted secret rares where right. you would see about 2.2 of them per case now every single secret rare you're only seeing at 2.4 per case and for you guys that don't know what a case is that's 12 booster boxes so around 720 dollars usually when a set comes out you're not even seeing a playset of every single secret rare anymore. It's mathematically impossible. Along with this, the all foil side sets ended up switching to these collector rare sets, which have completely failed. Uh, the only collector rare sets doing well are the world premiere sets, and every single deck building set, even with good cards inside, is failing because 
Well, you're only seeing three ultra rares per box with 10 different ultra rares, and that leads to 3.6 of each ultra rare per the $720 cases. And that's not worth it for the vendors to open. It's not worth it for the players to open. The entire community is struggling. Special editions also went away, which gave there was always coolant when special editions came out people would crack them for the promos the promos would usually be worth something now we have the 15 dollars msrp package sets like legendary duelist season one season two and we have to wait for megatons to have the reprints and this last year they plucked everything out access code talker droplet lightning storm all missing where the year before they threw in the kitchen sink apolos is already in gold series announced let's throw that in the tens oh over here, a pot of extravagance was in Tooncast. Throw that in the tins. They just double yep. dipped the reprint everything the year before. But this year, it, they paid super attention to their secondary market. And you can tell they do. People argue that Konami has no interest in their secondary market, which is completely wrong because it sells future products. What is short printed and also missing from the tins here in Brothers of Legend? It's Forbidden Droplet. That's exactly it. They are basically selling their own cards within in their product through ratios slash where they decide a reprint misses and where it goes instead. So and that's also something to be said there for them saying, I'm putting out the announcement that they will no longer be short printing secret rares in, in sets and then only implementing that in core sets. That way you end up with sets like Brothers of Legend where things like you said, like Forbidden Droplet are severely short printed. I do want to say they emphasized core sets initially and some other sets like the world premiere set slash the deck building set don't have short prints. It's just that now the new ratio is the old short print ratio, basically. Right. For everything. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, no more short well, prints, everything shorted. Well, yeah, I was about to say, if, if everything's short print, then nothing is short print. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the unfortunate truth of it. So that's how we end up in this boat. So to play on a budget is harder than ever before. We already mentioned that rogue prices have rise due to speculation and people right. going crazier than before. Everybody's saying this next deck's the new net. Remember, okay, I, I, I got so excited. I stumbled here. Marincess. Blue Tang yes. pre-sales were 60 freaking dollars. This is the next Cyrus deck that's going to take over. You'll see. All it did was top like an 80-some-odd person Alabama regional. Sweet home Alabama. That's all it did, man. Oh, people really went out of their way to like hype every rogue deck and try to convince you that it's the best deck and you have to not only navigate that misinformation but also have like people come to YouTube first off to get information and they're being spread all these different oh this will be the best deck next undefeated deck next tier zero deck is the next zodiac and we get it wrong sometimes with our player brain too like I said that Eldritch probably not that good Adamancipator is going to be one of the best decks ever it's combo seem insane and then they both were really 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 freaking good i way underestimated eldritch like a lot of yugi tubers did but i i was super on the spot with that emancipator you're gonna get it wrong even when you paid attention to this game all the way through and you're gonna have bad calls and that's gonna be everybody but the amount of bad calls out there on youtube is astra freaking nomical and you have to learn to navigate that yourself unfortunately so with budget 
Your options are, unfortunately, the sad truth, there's no fairy tale story, replacing the cards with worse options within a metagame that suit your needs. That's all you can do right. is take the worst option for less money and try to get as much replacement value either in the arena of this does the same thing or playing a deck that, this is an old term for you boomers, anti-meta deck that tries to counter as many of the decks in the metagame, but we've had very diverse formats throughout for a long time now because Konami seems vested in that. So anti-meta usually takes on one to three decks. You can't prepare for eight different matchups overall as much anymore with an anti-meta deck. You can't ignore what every single deck does. You try to shut down the extra deck, you're going to run into flunderies. You try to end up countering, you know, specifically like decks that summon a lot, you run into Eldritch. You just can't counter every single deck out there due to the diversity. All you can do is play the field to the best of your ability and take the lesser options and also take note of trends as you continue to learn Yu-Gi-Oh! For example, Ghost Ogre has recently been a super hot topic and it has been before and before that and before that and it falls off comes back falls off unlike ash blossom who has been consistently played in almost every single metagame since inception droll and lockbird and ghost ogre are two examples of hand traps that have their metagames where they fall back fall down in price maybe even get a reprint while that happens and then spike back up in the future if you pay attention to cyclical trends Sometimes paying that attention will pay you back later when you get in while it's cheaper, there's a newer reprint or something like that. Like most recently, Ash Blossom, I think, was printed in Gold Series, and the pre-sales were $8, and now that's worth about $30 just a year and a half yeah. later. Yeah, I think that there's definitely something to be said for keeping in mind what's going on, not only as a player but also really being able to identify what's happening in the market past just what you're playing yeah uh so how how do you separate your player brain and like the market aspect of it it's so hard it's so freaking hard because even while i was a vendor player brain would interfere so much and it would pay off more than it would lose because i'm a decent player but like for example Breakthrough skill was $7 while it was newer, and I was like, there's no way Breakthrough skill is going to be an insane card, and I bought, like, 46 of them, and they ended up being $40 a piece. That's a home run. Then I look at Skill Successor, which is a very, I believe it's called Skill Successor, it's the one where Hot is, and that... Um, yeah. the Skull Servant looking guy is blasting yeah. and it's another graveyard effect similar to it. Like, this has to be a great card. It was around $3 and I got a ton of them and it never panned out. It just didn't do anything. And a lot of people thought it would be insane. There's a lot of overhyped history with cards like all the way dating back to Tactical Evolution. Crystal Seer, I believe, came out of that. It pre-sold for 40 and it dropped to $10. People thought it would be the second coming of the Apprentice engine being in the metagame and it's such a crazy card effect for its time and kind of was but it didn't pan out and a lot of people's player brain lost them a lot of money at that pre-sale so i will say this going into that little segue pre-sales and also by that the venue sneak peeks have some of the most cloudy eye overhype that will happen but also some of the best prices you'll ever see on a card and that's where you unfortunately have 
to use player brain you have to say okay what's likely to drop down this rogue deck is probably not going to be worth much on release from a core set it's probably going to go down in price but this card is going to be played in every deck do we go for pre-sales now like access code talker it was a 40 dollars secret rare on pre-sales and even farfa was pointing out yo that's way too cheap man and it spiked to 70 during pre-sales never looked back continue to go up in price there's cards like that that end up being missed by vendors and pre-sales can be some of the best times to make money but it's often that sneak peeks since there's only so many copies in that room people get super hungry gotta have that card now where they rip themselves off in that hype so now you're connected electronically to the world. You can look at all these different vendors who exist for a reason and go, ah, I see they're pre-selling it for this price. Is it likely to go up? How much is it going to go for if it does go up versus uh, that's called opportunity cost, not a financial advisor over here. Uh, opportunity yeah. cost is where you basically look at if I don't put my money down now, where else can I put it? And am I likely to get a better return later on that money versus it sitting there or not pulling the trigger here? And people often associate that with FOMO, fear of missing out, which also tends to have them overstep, which is what we're referencing in the room with the sneak peek. I want to say that it's one of the craziest times. You know, the, the seeing something like DPE sell obviously for too cheap or cross out designator sell for 4x its price and people get ripped off. And I often have the right call on these kinds of things, but not always. In these instances, I pointed out, definitely had the right calls. But sometimes like, let's say Arlequino, oh, it's going to definitely help that deck altergeist. It's going to bring it back, baby. Uh, no, no, Arlequino did end up spiking in price. I was right about it, but then it never panned out. My player brain was absolutely wrong. Well, I'm starry-eyed playing the deck, winning with it a bunch, and it turns out I'm winning on Dueling Book, not playing against the best decks, and I probably overhyped that one. So yeah. you do have to look at situations like that, but to be fair, a lot of people fell for Arlequino. He's a good-looking guy. And went and spent their money on him. He went from $8, $12, $20, $22, and now he's like a $4 card. Yeah, I... I took the L on uh, early... Um, I took the L on early Crosshat Designator. That was a... <laughs> yeah. ho <laughs> Well, hey, hey, good news is I took the W on uh, my early crossout designator. Well, I was also, well <laughs> yes, but I was also going to say of the um, DPE. Pre, yeah, the pre-release DPEs. I pulled one at the pre-release. Immediately turned around and sold it for 125 bucks. Yeah, like I was saying, people in that room will just crash themselves like a wave against a rock, trying to get over no matter what it takes sometimes. They feel like they got to have that card then and there. And it's it's one of the weirdest things to actually witness throughout like the history of the game. At that same pre-release event, I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna go in. I'm gonna get all the Sword Soul stuff right away. Oof. And that one dude was in there, and he paid. He was like, Mo Yi, here you go, eighty bucks. Ecclesius, here you go, hundred bucks, right there, cash money. He was buying them, and I was like, nope, too rich for my blood. Mm -mm, nope, I'll wait, and I waited. And I got them at a much more reasonable price, and I have still lost money. So, you know. I think that's what helps a lot now, though. While those uh, sneak peeks start to happen now, they, they're called premiere events to be super confusing with a premiere top. But with Fair. the sneak peeks, as I'll reference them as a boomer, I feel like... 
I'll be honest, I didn't even know that the name changed because we came back in the game around release of Toon Chaos. This is actually the first time I'm realizing that they're not called sneak peeks anymore. Same, actually. I think Konami saw the term YouTube premiere and said, you know what? It's the premiere of a set. What a grand entrance. Wow. I'm sorry. So I cut you off. What were you saying? Uh, I think I was uh, talking about just how crazy it is in the room there and how bad it can get. But with pre-sales being so much more prevalent in the community from vendors who are just interested in making their little sliver of profit off the side of a hole. That's why you see them sometimes underestimate those star cards also often, like almost every single event. There's something you can point to in pre-sales and say, oh, wow, that was worth that at pre-sale. It's sure worth more now, just a couple weeks later, where the average advice from the people I see in the comment section, just wait, it'll go down in a couple weeks. I, I feel like that is the number one advice people try to give. And it's more so, no, you pick out the three to five things you think will go up in a set for your bingo list. You look at everything else, it will probably go down, but there's going to be around three to five things that are going to do a little 180 in a good set and start just climbing, 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 climbing and, and run away from it. And Due to pre-sales being mass accessible, it's a lot harder to rip yourself off in that room of a sneak peek unless you're that guy who has to have it right then, right now, and feels like you secured the bag. Absolutely. So I think that now is a wonderful time to go into our podcast question of the day. Of course, this is our question that we read off at the end of every episode. We answer, we read some of the answers that we got from last week, from the last episode, and we'll give you a new one. So last episode podcast question of the day was i wanted to know what decks are you building right now we got some great answers some people are building despia some people are building sharks punk world um some people are building things like dinosaur fluffle fluffle is a really cool deck in my opinion i, I love fluffle uh of course i may have just been talking with giant skyhawk a little too much but you know it's okay I, I still enjoy it. He's got you brainwashed on that fluffle goodness. He's got me pilled is what he's got me. Uh, Dragoon, Eldlich, things like that. Flunder, Sky Striker, Prank Kids, DDD. A lot of people are building DDD. I have I've seen so many people building DDD. So, um, But the, the new podcast question of the day will be, what is a card that you think is entirely too cheap right now? I feel like this is the right episode for that question. It really is. So, Mr. John Moore, thank you so, so much for joining us on today's episode. It really means a lot for you to come on, hang out, chat with us for a little while, talk about that market watch aspect of the community that I think a lot of people either may, you know, may just not put enough thought into when playing this game because I think that the pricing of these cards is so so deeply intertwined with the game itself at this point you know it's so so deeply necessary to understand if you're overpaying for a card if you're getting a good deal things like that so it means a lot for you to come on and talk with us and you know educate our listener base a little bit on some of the intricacies of working within the market a good note to end on here actually with that is how community driven that really is and that goes hand in hand with me and how i said earlier i don't know if it got cut out but it's how growing the entire community as a whole ends up coming back to you 
Yu-Gi-Oh! and its prices as a heartbeat really show how connected we are considering how terrible pricing is and that there's not really an end game cash-wise to playing Yu-Gi-Oh! yet the metagame influences prices so much like that because people love playing this game so gosh darn much even if the prizes don't match that at the end of the day, people are that crazy for the game within the communal aspect. That is a wonderful, wonderful segue. So thank you all so much for joining us on today's episode of the podcast. Be sure to give it a follow if you're on Spotify or iTunes. Be sure to give us a subscription. Go ahead and subscribe, like, and all of that business on YouTube. It helps out on the algorithm. And of course, we'll see you Tuesday, just like every every week. Oh yeah, take care, everybody. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.